strong tower. It's good to see everybody this morning. Uh, if you're our guest today, my name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. We're glad you can be with us today. Uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles, it's going to be in Genesis chapter 1 that will be this morning. So the first chapter, maybe the first page of your Bible, depending on which Bible you have. Genesis chapter 1. And as you turn in there, again, if you're a guest, we want to uh, encourage you, if you haven't had a chance yet, to connect with our church. Uh, we would love to be praying for you and connect with you. You could do that through the Connect card that was mentioned earlier by Steve as he was up here uh, leading us in prayer. So if you want to connect with us, we would love to connect with you as well. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. 26 through 28. Just three verses. Hear the reading of God's word. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, Work and Creation. Work and Creation. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word speaks to us whether we're listening or not, you are speaking. And so, God, we ask that your spirit would open us up to listen. Where we are closed off, open us up. Where we are dull-hearted, soften our hearts. God, make us ready and able to receive what you have for us today in your word, that you might make us more and more into the image of Christ, your son, in whose name we pray. You may be seated. Well, the star is labeled HD 166191. I had to look at my notes so I could remember the numbers there. Uh, but this star is about 325 light years away from Earth. Light years. It's younger than, than the sun that we have here. It's younger, it's hotter, it's bigger. And, and usually when there's a younger star like that, younger stars have these, uh, what they call protoplanets around them. And protoplanets are large, rocky objects that astronomers believe have the chance of becoming a planet one day over millions and millions of years of formation, right? And so they have these protoplanets, and this star has protoplanets, and they had been actually watching this star from the years 2015 to 2019. And as astro astronomers were watching uh, this star, they noticed that it basically stayed consistent all the way up until 2018, and then something really odd happened. The infrared light doubled in brightness in, in the images they were receiving. And so they're wondering, what's going on? What, why is it doubling in brightness? It, it had been basically consistent this entire time. And as they uh, had more images coming in, they realized that it wasn't actually the star that was getting brighter. It was something around it. 
And so when they looked closer, they saw that these two protoplanets, remember these things that are orbiting around this star, these two protoplanets had actually collided into each other at a high speed. Did you hear that? This is the kind of stuff you see in like a sci-fi film. This is the kind of stuff that astronomers, they, they say they, they had never seen it actually happen. They'd never seen evidence. They had theoretically thought this is possible, but this is actually, they have footage of it. They have, they have images of this happening. And what happened was it, it, it collided into each other. And because of the high intensity, there was so much heat, it actually vaporized a lot of the material and turned it into a cloud, this massive dust cloud. And so because of that cloud, all the light reflected off of the cloud, and that's why they were able to see it, this magnificent burst of light. Now, they, like I said, had never seen anything like this before, but now they've seen it. Now they've seen evidence of it, and they had always wondered what would happen when two worlds collide. What happens when two worlds collide? And apparently the answer is a lot of heat and a lot of dust. That, that's what happens. But, but have you ever wondered about that in your life? Like, what, what happens when two worlds collide? Maybe you've got a world of friends in one part of your life, and then you've got another world of friends in another part of your life, and you're wondering, what would happen if these two groups of friends collided? Or maybe what would happen if your past collided with your present? Well, what would happen if one area collided with another? Well, how about this? What would happen if your life of faith collided with your life of work? What happens when those two worlds come together? That's what we're going to look at this morning because what's really interesting is Christians have been struggling with this question for centuries. What happens when my Sunday collides with my Monday? What happens when these two things come together that they are integrated in my life? Now, there's been different approaches throughout history. The first one, if I can label it, is they view or we view uh, work as a necessary evil. Work is a necessary evil. I, I have to go to work because I need money. And I need money because I, I got bills to pay, I got kids to feed, I got a, a car to put gas in, I got all these things. And so I really hate my job Monday through Friday or Saturday or whatever your schedule is. I hate my job, but I go to work because it's a necessary evil. I need the money that it provides for me so that I can do the rest of my life. Right, that's the first view. And in that view, faith really has no uh, influence on your life. If anything, faith is just helping you survive the grind. Right? But then there's a second view, which maybe you could label um, separate but equal. You've got your separate spiritual life, and you know that, that meets all your spiritual needs. You pray and you read the Bible and you do your spiritual stuff. And then you've got a whole other life at work. And, and that is to meet your physical needs, your emotional needs, your financial needs, right? And, and so you're at work, you're one way, and when you're in church, you're a different way. You have these two separate lives that, that really never collide. That's the second way. Now, the third way is this. You view work as a mission field. And these are the people that they go to work. You, you probably have some at your job. You go to work, and, and your main goal is to get everyone saved. 
right? You, you, your main goal is I got to tell everybody about Jesus, and my job is just to try to get everyone to know Jesus at my job. And so you, you know that person, they're, they're on fire for the Lord, and they're talking about Jesus. They're trying to get you to pray and read the Bible with them, and on their lunch break, they're over there reading theology books. This person sees their job as the mission field. Maybe that's you. What's interesting, and there's probably many more different variations of those three, what's interesting is all of these have a a measure of truth in them, right? But is that how we're supposed to view the whole relationship? That's the question. What does it look like when these two come together and your spiritual life and your work life come together and they they, uh, integrate? Because God has designed our work for integration with our faith. That's what we're going to look at today and what we're going to look at for the next few weeks. We're actually beginning a new series today called Faith Goes to Work. Faith Goes to Work. And so over the next six weeks, we're going to look at Various topics related to your workplace, to your job, to what does it look like to find fulfillment and satisfaction? How do I balance rest with my work? All those kinds of things. But today, what we're going to do, before we get into the longer series, we're going to look at how do we set theological foundations? And that sounds like a big word, but but basically what I want to look at is how do you set your work into the context of God's greater work? How does what you do Monday through Saturday, how does that fit into what God is doing for all eternity? How, how does that fit in? Because so, that's going to help us understand where our work goes and how it fits. And so that's what I want to look at today. How does our work fit into God's work in the world? Let's, for, let's first look at the dignity of work, the dignity of work. If you're taking notes, the first point is the dignity of work. Look at me at verse 26, back in Genesis chapter 1. It says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, we're in Genesis chapter 1, which is often called the creation week, right? In six weeks, God creates, or six days, God creates all that we see. And and all throughout this creation week, uh, the only time that God says, let us make, like he says here, is right here. This is the only time in the whole chapter he says, let us make. Make and, and what's happening here is it's implying, it's making implicit what will later be explicit, which is that the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all active in creation. The Father is the one speaking, the Son is the Word of God incarnate, He is the one going forth, and the Spirit, it says, is hovering over all creation. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all there, and it comes to this climax in the sixth day. And on the sixth day, they create their crown jewel, humanity. In all the other days, God, after he finishes his creation, he says, it was good, it was good, it was good. And then he comes to the sixth day, and after he creates humanity, he says, it was very good. Very good. Why? Why does he say that about us? Here it is right here. It's because he says we're made in the image of God. We're made in the image of God. In fact, he repeats it four times in various ways so that you don't miss it. 
He says, in our image, after our likeness, his own image, the image of God, right? Male and female, everyone, image bearers. Now, I know your faces make it seem like that's not that radical, but listen to what I'm saying here. Think about who's listening to this original message. Genesis was written by Moses to the Israelites who had just left left slavery in Egypt. They had spent 400 years as slaves in Egypt, and now they're wandering through the wilderness, about to enter into the promised land, and Moses is writing Genesis to this group of people who throughout their entire centuries of existence in Egypt had never heard anyone ever called the image of God except who? Pharaoh. The only person in ancient cultures, in Babylonian cultures, and Egyptian cultures that was ever called the image of God was Pharaoh or the king. Because they were supposed to be God's representative to, to rule over the world. And so they were the only ones who had dignity and value and worth because they were in the image of God and everyone else was created to serve them. And so here's this group of people who've heard that for centuries. And Moses turns around and he says, you've been lied to. The image of God is on every single one of you. You hear that? He says to these people who've who've never heard anyone say you have dignity, you have value, you have worth. He says, no, you are image bearers. You have value. In fact, you have infinite worth because you're made not in some king's image. You're made in the image of the almighty God. That's who you are. This is who you are. And listen, because of this, because of who you are, now God has called you to do something with his image. And this is what Genesis 1 is saying. Theologians have called it the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate. There's two parts to it. You ready? Here it is. Reproduce and rule. Reproduce and rule. Now, the reproduce side, that might not make a lot of sense to you. You're thinking, what, why would that be a part of being an image bearer? Here's why. Because what, what would happen in the ancient world is the king or the pharaoh who had the image of God on them, they would spread their image all throughout their kingdom. And the idea was, if you ever came across the image of the king, you would be reminded that the king was the one who ruled over this land. And so God, as the king of all the earth, he says, I'm going to spread my image throughout the whole world so that everyone could see in you that I'm king. Do you see that? So God is not just saying multiply because he wants to have lots of people. God is saying multiply and reproduce because I want to spread out over the whole world this message that I am your king. You're my image bearers. But then there's a second part to it. As you fill the earth, as you fill the earth with my image, I want you to rule. Now, he uses a second phrase here that might be a little confusing. He says, have dominion over creation. Now, it's an interesting Hebrew word there. The Hebrew word can actually be used very negatively or very positively. It has a very wide range of use. Like The word literally means to just take control of something and use it. Right, So you could hear how that, that can be misused, right? So it can be a, a very negative thing or it can be a very positive thing. But here in Genesis chapter 1, God is using it in a very positive sense. And so it might be even better to translate it steward. You, you, you've been given a stewardship, right? You've been given a sense that you have control over this world and now you've been given the authority and the responsibility to steward it well. 
so that you can cultivate this world into something that is thriving and beautiful and and, and helpful so that God's world flourishes. But the way he's going to do it is through his stewards, through his image bearers. Do you hear that? That, That's the the God-given, dignifying work that he has given to every single one of us. He says all of your work matters because all creation matters. All of your work, every single kind of work, all work that cultivates a thriving world has dignity. Each and every one of us, as image bearers of God, has has been empowered with this purpose. Now listen, what that means is your purpose isn't tied to your position. Your purpose isn't tied to your position, which is very radical in our culture. It's countercultural today because in our culture, position is everything. It's all about your status. It's all about, you know, what's your position at your job? What's your, what's your income? What, what's your uh, position on the team at your, at your job? Whatever it may be, right? You've got people who, they look up to those people and they say, oh, well, the people at the top of the pyramid, they're the ones who have all the influence. They're the ones who have all the power. They're the ones who have all of the control. And so I must be less than them. You hear that? And so in our culture, we, we look up to those people and those people at the top look down at the people at the bottom and we treat it as if your value and your worth is in your position. But what God is saying is it has nothing to do with that. Your value and your worth is about what I've pronounced over you, which is you are my image bearer. Listen, there's a variation of this in the church. It, it's really the sacred and secular divide. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is in the church, and if you've been around the church for a little while, you know this, that we, we kind of look up to people who are in ministry, like full-time vocational ministry, people who are pastors or, or man, the Navy SEALs, the missionaries. The missionaries are like the heroes of the church. And so we have like this dichotomy, this tier system, a, a caste system, if you even want to call it that, where the people at the bottom are the people who just volunteer once a month. And then you got the people who are kind of middle grade, and they're, they're the ones who are really sold out. They volunteer every week. And then you got the people who get paid to do stuff for the church. And then you got people who are ordained, and they got the, the title reverend. And then you got the people who go overseas and give their life away, right? We've got this tier system. And let me tell you a secret. That's not biblical. It's not biblical. What God is saying right from the very first page of the Bible is I've given you all the same image. You bear my image and I'm giving you all the same job description. Cultivate my world. Have dominion over the world so that you can bring its thriving out of it. Did you notice he didn't say make it spiritually great or or make the churches really big? He said, I want all of it. He said, all the creeping creatures that are crawling around, I want all of it to thrive. You hear that? This is what he's saying. He's saying there is no tier system. And so what it implies is uh, those who teach elementary school or grow produce or clean office buildings or create artwork or run a startup company or nurture a family or trim trees or build buildings or sell insurance or whatever, you can go on and on. Every single person who does that dignifying work matters. It matters. Do you hear that? And so the question is, How can God use your work to cultivate your 
corner of creation. How does God use your work to cultivate your little corner of the world? Because let's be honest, I mean, most of us, we don't have the, the influence or the, or the position to be able to say, you know, I'm going to change the whole world. But you can, you can change your little corner of it. You can use your place and the gifts God's given you and the work God's given you to say, I'm going to cultivate this place, whether it's the restaurant I work at, or it's the business I, I own, or it's the school I volunteer at, or it's the kids I take care of at home, whatever it is, I'm going to use this work to cultivate God's world, to reflect Him. Remember, He says, I want you to fill the earth with my image. How are you going to do that? That's the work He's given to us. No matter the work, it matters to God. But if all this work matters, why, why can it be so miserable? So miserable. Let, let's look next at the misery of work. This is the second point, the misery of work. Now we're going to fast forward a little bit to Genesis chapter 3. And uh, in this chapter, we have the story of what theologians call the fall into sin. And so if you know the story, you know that Adam and Eve were, were brought into the Garden of Eden, and, and they're flourishing, and their life is thriving, and then God had called them to not only cultivate the world, but to also, he, he said, don't eat the forbidden fruit. Now, why in the world would that fruit be tempting? Well, serpent, the serpent, Satan, he comes to Eve and, and he tempts her with this temptation. He says, if you eat the fruit, you can be like God. Do you catch it? In other words, what he's saying to Eve is, is not uh, you can be in his likeness, but you can be even more. Right? She was already made in the image of God, but now he says you can be God's equal. You can have more than the dignity of being in His image. You can have the divinity of being like Him. You can be your own God. You can make your own rules. You can live your own life. You can be on His level. And so Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit, as you know. And this is what happens. Their eyes are immediately open. And the Bible says that they're, they're naked and they see their nakedness for the first time. And listen to this. What's the first act of work? that Adam and Eve do after the fall. They sew together fig leaves and they cover themselves. Isn't that fascinating? This, this is the God-given work that they've been given. God said to them, I want you to work. I've created you to work in this world. And the very first thing they do after the fall with their work is to cover their shame. Work has been corrupted. Now listen, there's a second corruption that happens. Creation is now cursed. Listen to what, he, what God says as he's giving out this curse in chapter 3, verse 17. He says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. What he's saying there is sin's now infected not just you as people, but sin has infected all creation. Its curse has even gone to the ground. And what God says is now that, that this has happened, work itself isn't cursed, but the conditions of our work are cursed. Right After the fall, now work becomes toil. Work is now hard, it's exhausting, it, it's, it's breaking your back, it's, it's frustrating. And, and he says, this is what's going to happen. You're going to work and work and work and there's going to be thorns and thistles. The ground isn't going to produce like you thought it would produce. It's going to struggle and you're going to struggle with it. But 
He says, not only is there going to be thorns, he says the promise here. He says, but you shall eat the plants of the field. In other words, what he's saying is, you're going to have a hard time. There's going to be thorns and thistles, but there's going to be fruit. There is going to be some results. There are going to be some things that do work. There are going to be things that you can say, I'm, I'm making progress. I'm seeing something happen. And so now, work after the fall, after the fall is entangled, get this, with shame and struggle. Work is entangled with shame and struggle. This is going to be a topic we hit for a couple weeks now. But the best biblical example of this, I think, is the Tower of Babel. In Genesis chapter 11, at this point, uh, the descendants of Noah had gathered together and, and they came up with this brilliant idea. They said, you know what? We've got bricks. We've got mortar. Let's build a city. Let's build a city. And we're going to build such a great city. It's going to have a tower in the middle of the city. And the tower is going to reach up to the heavens. We're going to reach the heavens with this building project. I mean, this is the kind of building project that would have been epic. It would have been the greatest thing anyone had ever achieved in that moment. Now, pause for a moment. Is it wrong to build something great? No. All right? I mean, God, God tells them to cultivate the world, make it thrive, have dominion over the world. This is good for you to, to build something great and desire to do that. But here's where it goes wrong. Did you hear there? motive, it says, let us make a name for ourselves. In other words, building the tower was this massive declaration of independence from God. It was saying, you know what, God, we're not going to need you to come down anymore into our life because we're going to come up to you. We don't need you to come down and help us. We're, we're going to come up to you because we're going to help ourselves. We don't need you to provide a name for us. We don't need you to, to, to pronounce over us your image. We're going to build up our own name. We're going to make a name for ourselves that, that is something we're proud of, something that we're successful, and it's going to give us a sense of value and worth. Do you hear that? It's the same temptation that Adam and Eve faced in the garden. The temptation is you could be like God. And the way you can be like God is through your work. It's through your work. Listen, it's miserable. It's miserable using work to try to make a name. It's miserable. In, in other words, we build tirelessly, we, we labor endlessly, we go on and on trying to work ourselves to death, trying to prove ourselves, hoping that our tower can reach up to the heavens and we can finally make a name for ourselves. But when was the last time you asked yourself, you just stopped for a moment and you said, why am I trying to build this? Why am I trying to build this life around my career? Why am I trying to get that promotion at my job? Why am I trying to push through this difficult time and neglecting my family? Why am I trying to do this? What is my motive? See, underneath our desire for a name is often this battle with shame. There's a battle with shame. The, the deep desire there is I feel like my name... Is, is not worthy anymore. My name is, is, is worthless. It, it doesn't produce anybody's applause. It doesn't give me a sense of, of proud satisfaction. And so I got to go out and I got to make a name for myself because the name I have is wrong. And, and listen, 
a lot of people have talked about shame recently in our culture, and, and people often define it differently than guilt, as guilt is a sense that you are, uh, or you've done something bad, right? And then shame is a sense that you are bad. Like it gets deeper down into who you are, not just what you've done. And so shame is this feeling that there's something fundamentally wrong with me. There's something fundamentally bad about me. And so I got to go find a name from somewhere else because I'm ashamed of who I am. I'm ashamed. And listen, one of the primary places that you and I go look for that name is in our work. Just like Adam and Eve... We sew together some fig leaves at our job, and we try to cover up the shame. Listen, there's two ways that we typically do this. Number one is idealism. This is what happens in Babel. Idealism is saying, you know what, my, my work can change everything. I can do something so great, it'll reach the heavens, and I won't need God anymore because look at how amazing I am. And so idealism really is this sense that I'm going to go out and change the world. I'm going to eradicate poverty. I'm going to educate kids. I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever it is, right? You're going to go do a lot of good things to change the world because you're convinced that your work can change everything. And so you work and you work and you work and you do as much as you possibly can to try to prove yourself by changing things. And what you forget is what God said in the garden. He said there's going to be thorns, there's going to be thistles. The work that you are setting out to do is going to be harder than you could ever imagine. The people you're going to work with are going to be more sinful than you could ever imagine. The, the frustration and the backsets and all of these things that you are going to struggle through, it's going to make it hard and exhausting. And eventually your idealism gets crushed. Because you thought your work could change everything. Listen, we're made in the image of God, but we can't be God. You can't be God. But the second one is not idealism, it's cynicism. See, if idealism believes that my work can change everything, cynicism believes my work can't change anything. What's the point? Why do I go to work? Why do I try so hard? Why do I do all these things? There's, there's no reason to do anything. I just work. This is the person who's given up and says work is a necessary evil because it doesn't change anything. The cynic, this is what's strange about cynicism and, and speaking as a fellow cynic. Cynicism tries to build a name by bringing other people's name down. In other words, I've, I've realized that, that everyone else is hopeful, and so I'm going to try to bring them down to my cynicism so that my name feels better because their name is lower. You feel that? There's this sense that I want to make sure everyone else sees all the thorns and all the thistles. And you miss all the fruit. You miss all the good because all you see is the bad. But it's still another form of trying to build a name for yourself. Do you hear the misery in that? What he's saying here is both of those don't work as ways to relate to your work uh, in this world. Neither one of them. It's miserable. And so you got to ask yourself, where am I on that spectrum? Am I, am I leaning towards idealism and God is calling me out of that into humility? Or am I leaning towards cynicism and God is calling me out of that into hope? Where are you? Because both of them will fail you. They'll fail you. And so what is our hope? What is our hope for work in this fallen world? 
This brings us to the last point, the redemption of work. The third point is the redemption of work. Look, look at chapter 3 again, verse 21. God goes on to say this after he pronounces those curses. It, it says this, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. You hear that? Don't miss it. It's a subtle detail, but it's so important. What it, it's contrasted with what happens with Adam and Eve, right? The moment Adam and Eve sin and their eyes are open, they see their nakedness, the very first thing that they do in their work is they sew together fig leaves, cover their shame. The very first thing God does after the fall in his work is to put together animal garments and cover their shame. Do you catch it? Well, what he's saying is what you are trying to do to cover your shame is not the way it's going to work. That, that's not going to be enough. What, what's going to cover your shame is not fig leaves that you put together in your own work. It's going to take my work, and, it's going, and here you go. I'm going to do it for you. But listen to what the subtle detail is there. He doesn't cover them with leaves. He covers them with an animal skin. An animal skin implies that an animal had to die in their place so that God could take the animal's skin and turn it into clothes and clothe them with his clothes. It's hinting at something. It's hinting at the gospel. This is, this is one of the very first early instances where you see God's gospel coming forth, where God is saying to them, you're going to need a substitute. You're going to need someone who can step in your place. You're going to need somebody, and that person is Jesus himself. That one day Jesus would come, and Jesus is going to step into the scene just like Adam, and Jesus would be the second Adam. And Jesus, the second Adam, would be like Adam in a garden at the end of Jesus' life, and he's faced with the reality of his work. He's faced with the reality that God had called him to this work of redemption, and he knows it's going to take him giving up his life. He knows that there's no other way. In fact, he prays that. He says, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. And what does he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Yours be done. Jesus stared in the face of his work, and he said, you know what? I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be faithful to the Father because there's no other way we can cover their shame. The only way humanity's shame can be covered is if I die on the cross and I give my life as a substitute and then they can be covered with my life. They can be clothed in my righteousness. They can be clothed in my grace. And listen, that's not the end of the gospel. Jesus' good news doesn't stop with what he does to cover our sin. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. He says this, The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Listen, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul is saying this, all of creation is groaning. It's longing for the day of full redemption. The ground that was cursed is groaning, longing that God would bring the full uh, salvation of all creation. So when Jesus dies on the cross, listen, darkness covered the earth. Earthquakes shook the land. The rocks split. The tombs broke open. What was happening? What was happening was creation was coming undone because God was signaling that day there would be a new creation. There would be a new creation in Christ so that God would redeem not only his people, but his place. He would redeem all things in Christ. 
he would redeem the heavens and the earth, and heaven would come down, and this whole place would thrive and flourish because God's ultimate work is to redeem all the world, all the world. I'll close with this. Art restoration is a painstaking process for experts alone, usually. But a few years ago, an amateur uh, 80-year-old woman uh, took it upon herself to try to restore a 19th century famous painting of Jesus by a Spanish artist by the name of of, uh, Elias Martinez. And uh, she didn't have any permission, didn't have any help, but decided to take it upon herself to do a DIY project with this infamous painting this lady's name, Cecilia Jimenez, uh, she, she decided she would take this on her own, and uh, this painting was in terrible condition, but it got worse. Don't worry. And so she took her out her paintbrush and her painting uh, utensils, and she went to town. She started to paint Jesus' face, and then she painted all around Jesus. And after each stroke, she stepped back and realized it was getting worse, and so she tried to add more to it and more to it. By the time she got just a few minutes in, Jesus looked like some kind of sci-fi creature. It was terrible, and she realized it was terrible. She realized she had taken off too much. She didn't know what she had done, and so she turned herself into the authorities, and she was arrested for her activity, and she said this. She was quoted with this. I began with good intentions but it got out of hand. I began with good intentions, but it got out of hand. She was simply incapable of doing the work. She was incapable. But the good news of the gospel that I want you to leave with today is there's only one person who's capable of restoring all creation, and it's not you and me. It's the true and better image bearer, Jesus himself, It says about Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. There's coming a day when the groaning of creation will end. There's coming a day when the toil of your life will relax. There's coming a day when redemption will reach as far as the curse is found, and it's going to come through the work of Jesus and through Him alone. And so as we work, do you need the hope of the gospel to encourage your work? Because here's what I want you to listen and and, and take away. I want you to hear this. God has purpose in your work because your work is his work. Whatever your work is. And so he's calling you out of the idealism to think that your work can change everything. And he's saying, you know, let's let's be humble. You're made in the image of God. You're not God. But he's also calling you out of cynicism to say your work really can make a difference. And he's calling you into the hope to realize that what you are working on, wherever it is in your life, God is working there with you. Because his ultimate plan, his ultimate work is to redeem all creation, and that includes you and your life. And so wherever you find yourself this morning, I want us to hear that God is working in you and in your work, that he might bring glory to himself and for your good in all creation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your work is without comparison. Your work that was faithful every moment, where we are 
often unfaithful, where we are often distracted, we are often discouraged, we are often even depressed and despairing, or we are often wrongly assuming, proud and arrogant about what our work can do and what our abilities are. And Lord, we neglect you. We try to build towers that make names for ourselves. We try to be you instead of resting in you. Oh Lord, we ask that you would forgive us, but transform us. Transform our hearts and minds to realize the the work you've given us, whether it's with our families, whether it's with our jobs, our neighborhoods, our schools, whatever it may be, all the work, as your word says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. God, that's what we ask, that you would be glorified in it, that we as your image bearers would let all the world know that you are king, you rule and reign, and this king has done the greatest work to give himself for us. May we bear that image. We pray in Christ's name.